0: sounds embarrassing saying that, but I don't care. Like, I would just stand in front of the mirror and I would just dance. I remember listening to Dillinger tunes and just being like, this, 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 I feel, this is how I feel, you know. I was there at a rave with my friends. We were 18. And I heard my tune being played for the first time in a club. By Loxie as well. By Loxie, bro. And I just remember seeing my friends, they were like meerkats. They just popped up out of the crowd looking for me and they were like, oi, oi. And I was like, oh, oh, oh my
1: God. <laughs> like, I get
0: tingles now thinking about it. I it got was, tingles. Yeah. Man. Wow. And I was, oh my days. I still struggle with having with doing shows because sometimes I don't want to do it. Because I know that how much energy it takes to get up there and to really perform. It's kind of why I tend to gravitate gravitate more towards soulful stuff these days, because it just it has a much deeper connection to me.
1: Time to make another deep connection. It's the One More Thing podcast, interviews with inspiring minds and creative souls across the beats and bass sphere, with myself, Dave Columbo Jenkins. This time we are gravitating towards Halogenics, a man who I've been interviewing since his earliest releases over 10 years ago. A founding member of Ivy Lab, this London talent has been flourishing as a solo artist for many, many years, sculpting bangers of all shades and hues, but perhaps best known for his barbed slant on soulful and deep drum and bass. 2023 is looking like a new level for Halogenics, as he's just launched his new label, Gemini Gemini, and he's released some of his most meaningful and personal work in the form of his Lost Friends EP. Stick around and find out everything you need to know about Lawrence Redding right now, including his rich musical upbringing and how he is forever navigating the intense pressures and challenges of being a touring underground artist in the 21st century while managing to remain well, balanced and healthy. Recorded in February 2023 in his local Tottenham stomping ground, this is another exceptional story from an extraordinary talent, most of which he's never spoken about or revealed in any interview before time once again to get inspired thank you so much to anyone who's listening and supports one more thing an extra special thanks for halogenics for this awesome interview get to know
0: Hello, Hello. Hello.
1: How are you, man?
0: Good, mate. I'm good. It's nice to be here. Yeah, really nice. Really nice. Thanks for joining me. Mate, thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Cool. We've got loads to talk about. I've kind of been chronicling your career almost since the very, very start, haven't I? Yeah, you have. Cool, man. We're going to go through that journey, really, and go way, way further back. But first, I just want to ask you a question about yourself, really. Yeah. Would you say you're an ambitious man?
0: I would. And it's funny you ask because recently I've been on a journey of self-discovery, which includes kind of trying to understand my ambition. I would definitely describe myself as ambitious, but I think they're the kind of types of ambition that can often lead to Feelings of unhappiness, I guess, you know, like never really satisfied. Totally. Um, totally. Goalposts always move with your ambitions. You know, you kind of achieve one thing and then you realise that actually there's more you want to achieve and it kind of never never stops. Yep. And so recently I've been trying to understand, you know, the root of my ambition. You know, wow. where do I where do I want to get to? You know, is there ever gonna be a point in my career or my life where I, I end up somewhere and go, right. This is I it. made it. <laughs> I can stop now, and I don't think I. I don't think that's necessarily true.
1: I don't think there ever will become that point. No, really. but I, I.
0: I want to get to a point where I feel like my ambition is more authentic. Right. You know, rather than trying to trying to prove something or, um, trying to fill a gap, trying to you know. Wow, this so, is fascinating. Yeah. So I'm. It's, you know, I'm, it's an ongoing journey for me, but I definitely do have uh, high ambitions um, and it's just, it's interesting, my journey at the moment, trying to figure out what they are yes. and, uh, and how how I um, satisfy them.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I'll tell you the reason why I particularly asked this question with mm. you. It's because there's two types of ambition that I see in music. And I'll use drum and bass as an example. There's the Calibers and the Alex Perez's of the world who are just effortless. Mm-hmm. You can't sense the ambition. Mm. There's just creativity oozing out of them. And then you've got the really, really driven people like Voltage or Goldie or Andy C where The ambition, you can sense that often. There's an energy. Yeah. And I've thought about all of our interactions and everything that I know about you. And you hover between the two. Mm. Sometimes when I speak to and we've done interviews, I've come away really inspired and I get this sense that you're on a mission somewhere. And other times it's just coming out of you. It's just flowing. It's just natural. And I couldn't, most people seem to fall in one or the other kind of category. When I think about all of the people who really inspire me or I speak to on a regular basis and you float between these two worlds in a way, really. Does that make sense to you, hearing that observation about yourself?
0: Yeah. And I think one thing I guess that I notice about my public interactions when i'm talking about myself or my work is that i try to bring a kind of honesty to it like if i'm struggling or if i'm having a good time i'll i'll be quite open about that and i think that with creativity and the arts there's some this is so complex it's not just about i sit down and i create art and people Hmm. like it there's you know there's your own identity wrapped up in it there's there's money involved in it there's there's um there's politics involved there's there's social there's social dynamics involved there's such a, a broad scope of things happening at the same time that i think it's quite difficult to gauge how someone is feeling about their work just by looking at them from the outside yeah you know yeah. and so As much as you say, and I'm not disagreeing with you. As much as you say the Calibers and the Alexes and stuff like that seem effortless, I'm sure if you did a deep dive, you'd find that they were incredibly hardworking and and um, motivated by a strong ambition. Oh, massively! Yeah, yeah. And then the Goldies and the Andy C's, you know, they're probably just they like to wear it on their sleeve a bit more. Yeah, you know, it's part of their identity that image of being always working always on the grind always ch- trying to find the new and the exciting and I think maybe your interpretation that I go between the two is maybe an observation that I I struggle with with where I see myself and sometimes I want to seem like I'm being more natural about it and then sometimes I want to be like no I really want to be seen to be working hard <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, and yeah. I sh- and I, 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 I say the word struggle a lot, but I think it's, it's just something that I contend with, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I do agree with your observation, and I think that, that maybe that's just my character. Yeah,
1: know? definitely. Let's go back earlier on in mm. your character. So I thought that my yeah. first interview with you was around A Bleak. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, actually. It was the next track that you released, which was a collaboration just a couple of months after with Sabre called Rude Industry. But It was Stray. Uh, oh, see, I did exactly the same mistake when I interviewed <laughs> you at the time as well. Jeez. <laughs> um, yeah, when Lots you did a collaboration with Stray. So you did Rude Industry. Um, and yeah, it was around about that time. I mean, this was literally within a year or two of your career, really, wasn't it? Or yeah. a year or two within releasing professionally. Yeah, um, Where were you at, at that time? Can you even recall... Like, you know, you must have been interviewed loads of times. Can you recall? It was on the phone and it must have just been with you and Jay. Um, can you recall that interview? No. <laughs> <laughs> can you recall no. that time?
0: I remember, definitely remember the time. It was because it was what, 2011?
1: Yeah, 2012.
0: Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, 2012, early 2012. Um, I was still living at my mum's house in Stokey and my studio was in the basement and I was just, I was, what, well, I was 22 and so i was just keen and i was just just all my ambition was on my sleeve you know anybody that met me was just knew that i what i wanted to do i wanted to be a musician i wanted to be a dj i wanted to be a producer um by any means necessary and i was networking and i was trying to get involved in the scene sending music to people trying to link up with people and that that kind of raw ambition i think is sometimes quite challenging in that it can be misconstrued as like being quite keen and the word keen is like it's not necessarily a negative connotation in that word in and of itself but it's like drum and bass and music it's a a drum and bass for me anyway has kind of been seen as this very cool club you know (gasps) and for me i was like an outsider And I just, I wanted to be in it so much. (laughs) It was just my dream, you know, and, and I didn't really consider that there was a way to do things. There was, you know, how to approach people, how to talk to people. And this very much says a lot about the scene rather than me, because I think it's fairly natural. If you want to do something, you just go, you just go for it. Right. Mm. But I, you know, I remember ruffling quite a lot of feathers because I was just like, I was just there. I was at all the parties you're like, let's work together. Let's do this. Let's do that. And people were like, I know, chill out. Mate. Easy. You know? yeah, <laughs> but I mean that, so that tune and that time. Yeah. I was just, I was just on a, on a mission, on a mission, on a mission to, to introduce myself to the world, to prove myself to people that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't just a nobody. I had something to say. Um And I think I just met my my now wife. Um, My mum was, so my mum had this house in the where I grew up and then she moved down to the countryside and I just had the house to myself. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I had the studio in the basement and it was just party central, man. (laughs) House parties and just random people coming through. I remember Dave Hydro lived with me for a while. Alex Eveson lived with me for a bit. And yeah, I was just... I was in that space where I just wanted to write music.
1: Go on.
0: And I just... I didn't... There was no... You know, I was... Uh, I came into music from like Dillinger and and Pendulum and the kind of much more kind of... I don't know how... Energetic side. Yeah. But then I really fell in love with, you know, Sabre and Calibre and the much more deep introspective stuff because it kind of spoke to who I was at the time I was you know maybe trying to find out who I was and and kind of alone really because my mum had you know moved to the countryside my brother was at uni in Nottingham and I was in Hackney just by myself still a kid really literally still a kid and just being like I want to be in music and I don't know how to do it but I'm just going to try Wow, and, and it paid off. Like, <laughs> yeah. Your
1: earliest release was on Invisible, Noiseless label, yeah, like yeah, really yeah. early on. Yeah. So that how did that come about
0: then? Well, obviously, we... So myself, Stray and Sabre linked up in 2011, 2010.
1: 2011,
0: I reckon. It's 2011, because Sabre wrote his album on Critical. Yeah. He did a... Uh, I think Stray did a remix for that album. And I... Met Stray through my friend Finn, who ended up working at Rints, um, because they went to Leeds Uni, and so I when my when my mate Finn went to Uni, he asked me to give him a CD of my music so he could take it with him. Um, and he was mates with uh with Jay, and he gave Jay that CD, and Jay hit me up on MySpace.
1: <laughs> Go on,
0: and was like, "Yo, my mate Finn gave me your tunes. They're really cool," and. It, I listened to Jay's music, and I was like, "Wow, this is incredible." Um, and we, so we started chatting on Aim on AOL, and then he was sending me he was sending me like demos that he'd written with Sabre, and then I was funnily enough in the studio with Sabre as well because my older brother went to Nottingham uni with Sabre's little brother. Oh, wow. And so <laughs> what a complex little yeah, web of little triangle. Yeah. And so my brother was coming back from the holidays and with all this music on his computer and I was like, yo, what's this? I'd never heard it before. It was all a kind of unreleased early saber stuff. And I was like, this is mental. Because there was a tune there was a pendulum tune called Still Grey. And it was my favourite off that Hold your colour album. Because it was deep and it was like emotional and and a lot of that Sabre stuff was kind of very atmospheric and and the kind of similar style. Mm. And so, yeah, so we were in, the, I was in the studio with Sabre, Sabre was in the studio with Stray, and I was in the studio with Stray. And so the first studio session that I had with Stray, we wrote Rude Industry.
1: Oh, well, that came about from the very first session. The very, very first wow. session.
0: And he came to my house, and we were, the, we were in the basement in the studio, just messing around on ideas. Um, and I, this was I think this was the first time I'd done a collab with someone I'd never met. You know, Stray just came to my house. You know, I'd never met him before, so I didn't know him. There was kind of awkward, like, are we are we going to get on? Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Okay, we identify with each other musically, but not necessarily on a personal level. And it was a good, it was a struggle for like a few hours trying to figure each other out, you know,
1: Find each other's kind of comfort zones as well, isn't it? Because you're yeah. dealing with a sensitive creativity, is sensitive in that way, and so it's it's a really random or it's, it's quite a strange, surreal setup. Any collaboration
0: when you haven't met yeah. anyone, isn't it? And there's a there's a kind of power dynamic which you have to negotiate fairly, like you say, sensitively, because there's only one computer and there's only someone, there's only one person that can be doing something at any one time. You know, I had a fairly modest setup back then. It was just a computer, a screen, some speakers. It didn't have any hardware or synths or anything like that. So it was just like, we were just on logic, just, you know, pressing buttons. Um, and so trying to trying to figure that out was, was uh, interesting. And I th- the first few hours, we were just going around in circles, like couldn't really figure out an idea, couldn't get anything interesting on the page. And then it all clicked in a matter of minutes. Oh, go on. It was like that main, I think the main drum loop kind of came up. And we were like, yeah, that's cool. And then, you know, the energy changed, you know, and it was like, oh, let me have a go, let me have a go, let me have a go. We were just constantly like pushing each other to the side and, and, <laughs> and getting get on the computer to try and get our ideas down. And then we wrote the tune in, in, you know, in that session. And yeah, that was Rude Industry. That was the time. And, and it's, I think about it now, I think back about it now. It was mad. It was so long ago.
1: Wow, so because that came out after bleak, but that was a long time before. Yeah, because that came then. out in
0: Drum Bass Arena, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'd just started working for Drum Bass Arena, so it was a really early interview yeah. that I'd done.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow, cool. So we're going to come back to that point, but I want to go much, much, much further back because you had a very, you were exposed to music in quite a unique way or in a special way as a child growing up, weren't you?
0: Yeah, my dad was a musician. Um, he played the French horn in the London Symphony Orchestra, and he was like you know, back in the seventies, the late seventies, early eighties. So he was playing with John Williams on the Star Wars, um, Raiders Raiders of the Lost Ark, like Indiana Jones, all that stuff.
1: He's on those soundtracks yeah, 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 on yeah. those scores. Yeah, he's
0: Whoa. on the original Star Wars. Like, oh my god! Da, 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 da. So he was the, he was the, he was the fourth horn. <laughs> he was the fourth horn in the French horn section, and they're playing the Emperor's March.
1: Oh, I got goosebumps. Right, down, right, it's mental.
0: <laughs> and so the stories he he would tell me, and and I I would go with him to his rehearsals because he played at the Barbican, he played at the Royal Festival Hall, um, and so I'd go with him to his rehearsals, and I just remember this just the energy, and I just it was like I'd go there, and some of the other musicians would have their kids there or whatever, but it was rehearsals. They're all in their their normal clothes, right? They're just on the stage. The conductors came, right? We need to do this, that, that, that. And I've got free reign of the whole building. <laughs> and I'm walking around and I'm meeting everybody. I'm meeting all the techies and I'm meeting all the kind of, you know, um, staff back, you know, backstage, whatever. And they, they just loved me because I was a kid. Yeah. And I just had, I had basically had a triple A pass in these insane venues wow. when I was like 10. And amazing i just remember just being completely like um drunk on that experience i just I, I was like this is amazing yeah and then seeing him seeing him then perform the actual main concert you know yeah. i was just so proud yeah i was so proud and and i was so like i was so gassed to be there and that you know from then on i just i just knew that i i wanted to be in music you know i had to do it it was just like, what What else is there <laughs> when you're 10? And your dad is like superhero, you know? Um, wow. I was going to say, was it love at first
1: sight then? Was that your path mapped out for you there? Or were there other distractions? But it sounded like it was no, musical all I the mean, way. No,
0: I mean, when I was seven, when I was seven, I remember he picked me up from school once and he goes, right, you're going to have some music lessons. And I was like, okay. And he was like, so the cello or the piano? Uh, oh no, it's cello. It was a cello or the violin. And I just remember knowing that the cello is a big one that you put in between your legs, mm. and I was like, that, that 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 looks cool, and so I did cello lessons up until when I was I was eleven, grade five. I did the piano for about a year, um, and I was so I was just I was just immersed in music, you know, but then it wasn't only my dad either. It was my brother. My older brother was really into music. He was into all kinds of stuff. He was into pop music. He was into dance music. And uh, I have this very vivid memory where he went out with my mum one day and came back. They'd gone shopping and he bought back um, two CDs from HMV or whatever. One was pure techno and one was pure drum and bass. And the pure drum and bass one was mixed by Groove Rider. Oh go on, And, I was just... I, I'd i never heard it in my life. I was 10 years old. And the first track was Bacteria by Ed Rush and Optical. And I just <laughs> yeah. remember that... D-d-d-d-d-d. And I was like, yo, what is this? And I just... I would always steal. he We, we had fights all the time when we were kids because I was always stealing his stuff. Because of course... <laughs> How much I was older is he? A few- three years. Oh,
1: right. The classic age. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So
0: like, I just looked up to him so much. Everything he did was really cool. He was like... He was always, you know... He was like, get away, you know, let me do my own thing, whatever. But I was just like, no, I just want to be a part of his kind of crew. I was, I wanted to be mates of all his mates, you know. Um, and so I would always steal his music. I'd always steal his going go into his room, steal his CDs. And I think he really liked the techno one. And so he never really used to notice that I'd stolen the drum and bass one. So I used to have it for like long periods of time. <laughs> and I would just listen to the first four tracks because, and I would just... Uh, Sounds embarrassing saying that, but I don't care. Like I would just stand in front of the mirror and I would just dance. Go on. <laughs> For the first four tracks. I can't remember the other three, but the def- the first one was was Bacteria. Ed Rush and Optical. There was there was um, uh, the Diary Mix of Autumn by Dillinger, and I was just like, this is mad. This uh, the, I'd never heard this stuff before. It was so energetic and 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 um, evoked so much kind of feeling mm. because it was so it was so raw and back then it was, it would have been what I would have, I was 10, so it would have been 99 and it was so, it was still, it was still, you know, from, from the, from the golden era.
1: Yeah. Still that fresh energy. Yeah. yeah.
0: Underproduced, like kind of just mixed in, in, in relative terms, really badly, just loud bass, lashing drums. And that was it. Yeah. And I just, I absolutely fell in love with it. And but so it was always
1: there then it was, was always
0: there, but it's funny because as a kid, I'd never really had um this sense of like wondering what else there was. Someone would show me something and I was like, "Cool, that's it, I'm done yeah that that that's me, you know and so I had that c d and that's all I listened to for like a good year. Wow and never even it never even occurred to me that there was a complete world out there of this stuff. 'Cause I had that one C D and for me that was that was all that, that existed. And then two things happened. My mum used to make like candles and stuff like that. She had, she got a market store, Spitfields Market, and I went with her to help her sell all of her candles and that. And the dude next to us was selling vinyls. And he was this really cool guy. And I was I was about ten. So I was just cheeky and, you know, up for anything. And I would just I would just, you know, go and hang out with this dude. And help him sell the records. And then he eventually, I, th- I think on the second day, he'd be like, I'm gonna go get some lunch. Can you can you take care of the store?
1: So you were running a record store and at the age 10. of ten. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, of course, man.
0: Brilliant. And so I'd put I'd f- I'd be digging through his records and I'd put on these records and I'd turn it up really loud. And I remember the guy that ran the market store would always come and tell me to turn it down. <laughs> and then at the end of that day, he was like, Um, choose any record you want. Just choose one record and that's yours, and I chose wow. "Block Rockin' Beats" by Chemical Brothers. Brilliant! And I still, I've still got it. It's like my first ever record, but that so Your that first w- wage, yeah, that, from yeah, music. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> got paid in records, and then the second, the second thing that happened was, um, I found another CD and I found another drum bass CD, which was an "Under Fire" mix CD by Mampy Swift. And it had things like Stacker and Skynet tunes on there and Friction tunes and KT tunes and, um, you know, the kind of very early tech step yeah. stuff. And that was the second CD I had. Wow. And it was like absolutely blew my mind. So I went from like, you know, Ed Rush and Optical, Dillinger to Conflict and <laughs> and Stacker and Skynet. And I was just like, yeah, I'm I'm sold.
1: Wow. That's that's quite a refined taste for a
0: 10 or 11 year
1: old as well. It is. uh,
0: There's also the other element, which is that my brother was also very into heavy metal. And so I was very into heavy metal. I used to paint my nails black. I was really into Corn and Slipknot and Lamb of God and these kind of very, what I guess would be considered now commercial heavy metal bands. Um, they were the business back they then. Were, weren't they were, man. <laughs> it was so, so much anger and rage. They and, sang mm, to teenage boys. They did. Yeah. They did. And um, drum and bass was kind of the electronic equivalent for Ooh. me of that because it was so raw. I remember listening to Dillinger tunes and just being like, "This, this this. I feel this is how I feel." You know, Mwah. big Reese's and yeah. gnarly drums and the the synergy between heavy metal and drum and bass for me, which is still something I think about a lot now, um, really kind of galvanized my affinity and love for it. There's a, there's a culture and Mm. there's a, there's a, there's a sound, which, which, which that's what's so powerful about music. You know, it transcends all of that stuff and it it kind of speaks to your core. And, and so experiencing that at 10 years old was incredibly powerful.
1: Wow, But then there was this duality then with learning the cello and then later the piano and quite a probably I would imagine quite an academic musical
0: influence from your father in a way. Yes. So the cello stopped when I was 11 because I literally walked into secondary school, my first day of secondary school, and I had the cello on my back. Oh wow! And I just remember thinking,
1: this, this is in a London inner city school. Yeah. Like you, you're going to get, you, you, yeah. you're going to attract some attention. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> Which is exactly what happened. Oh, uh, what's that? Uh, and I was just like, oh. and I literally gave it up there and oh, then. Oh man! I know it's. I know it's. It's you know, my dad. My dad said to me, "You're going to regret this." And I was just like, "Well, no," cause I, and then what happened is that I picked up the guitar. Yeah, and um, I started a band with my mate Simon. Who uh, is Carrera from Collective? Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, so we went to school together, and so we back in the day we were Halogenics and Carrera.
1: No way! That was wow. our thing,
0: yeah. And then he went off and did his thing with with um, Karim, yeah. Um, and I did my thing, um, but yeah, we were in a really, really bad band. Are there any recordings of no. this around anywhere? No, no. CD, even if were away, even <laughs> if there were. <laughs> but so yeah, he was he was a drummer. I was a guitarist and I'd go around to his house. I'd bring my amp and my guitar and it was just terrible. We didn't <laughs> know what we were doing. He was playing like really elaborate drum loops and I was like trying to make riffs. Wow. But then, you know, I would bring around my drum bass CDs and we were stoners. So we just got stoned and just like listen to Dillinger and just was like, yeah, this is a this is- Brilliant. F the guitars. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wow. Little did you know that you both go on then to yeah. have like independent musical lives, yeah. like drum and bass lives, yeah. like in this type of way. Yeah. So when did production come into this? It must have been very soon after, or part it was of this.
0: Fifteen. So I got my first laptop when I was fifteen. I got a MacBook, one of the white ones, and it had, um, it had. It had Garage Band on there, which was rubbish back then. You know, it was like you could record audio on it and you could kind of do very basic production stuff. But my my oldest friend Simon, not this not the not Carrera Simon, another Simon who I grew up with on my street. He's his friend Bertie, who funnily enough does all the artwork for me now. Oh very well. Correct. He actually makes beats as well. He's a sick sick hip hop producer. And so when I was about fifteen. Me and my friend Simon, who I grew up with, he went to a different school. He went to um, he went to a school in Dalston, and I went to a school in, uh, like, Walthamstow. Um, and I would go ra- go around to his house and meet all his new school friends. And one of his friends was Bertie, and he had Reason, like a really early version of Reason. And he gave me a copy of it on CD, because I was like, yeah, I, lo- I like making music. And so he gave me his copy of Reason, and it was just, it was like a cracked copy of Reason, and didn't have... You just installed it and that was it. It didn't come with any presets or I didn't know what I was doing. This was before like YouTube tutorials, you know. And so I just remember opening up this program on my computer and being like, what what am I looking at? (laughs) What is this? And just trying to navigate the menus, like clicking buttons, seeing what things did. And then eventually like a, you know, a synthesizer would pop up and I was like, okay and then a little keyboard, and I'd play the keyboard, and the notes would happen, and I was like, okay, cool. So that's how you I create a melody. There was presets on the synth, cool. But then I'd try and create another one, and it would mute the first one. So I was like, so I, was like I didn't understand. I was like, do people make music just with one instrument? <laughs> All this stuff I'm hearing, on the, these, it's like incredibly technical, crazy producers that make of one instrument. And then it didn't occur to me that, it, I, it took me a while to figure out that there was a mixer and so you had to add a mixer and then you had to add, because Reason, I don't know if you've ever seen Reason, but Reason is like a piece of software where you can, if you you press a key and everything flips around and you can see all the cables at the back. It's yeah, kind of like right analogous of like an yeah. actual studio. And so you create a mixer and then you actually plug the different instruments into the actual mixer. Um, and so that took me ages and I was messing around with that. And I started making hip-hop. That's, that was my first thing I ever made. Was hit. Even though I was really into drum and bass, um, I was making hip hop and I was making, I was trying to make drum and bass at like 160. So it was kind of it was like jungle speed. Um, and it took me ages because like I said before, with respects to not being, I guess, very intuitive, I it didn't occur to me that there were there were things that I could go and find, resources that I could find which would teach me how to do this stuff. It was like, I was very much like, I need to figure this out by myself. Not through any kind of sense of, of of like ambition more just like I didn't I just didn't know any any better yeah yeah and so I was just messing around and it took me it took me years honestly it took me years to figure out how to do anything proper until I was like 18 really 18 19 I'd been trying to make stuff for like 4 years I was making wow. really bad jump up I was you know <laughs>
1: That's quite indicative of the time as well, isn't it? Because like tutorials, as you said, tutorials weren't a thing. Access to information wasn't quite the same way it was. And also, as a culture, even if you knew people in the scene, like secrets and techniques were guarded a little bit more than they are now. Really, in that way, there was
0: there was Dogs on Acid, Mm. and that was about it for me. And so, all of my samples came from Dogs on Acid. I would post clips and just get slated. You know, work on this, or this sounds bad, or try and Are do this, still
1: there, like that famous Noisia quote of Tice asking what a Reese is, or something like that? That's still on Dogs and Acid I, I, now. Because they
0: archived it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. it came back. I'm sure if you looked, you could probably find some of my very, very early demos.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then not long after that, so it took you up until 18, to you felt that you were actually managing to get the sounds that were in your head out of the speakers to a
0: certain degree.
1: Yeah, it was, with,
0: yeah, to the point where I was like, okay, this doesn't sound like trash. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then, I mean, that, that kind of sticks with you then forever, really, doesn't it? That inner self-critic yep. and yep. stuff like that, really. But within a couple of years of that, you were making, you know, everything seemed incredibly rapid mm-hmm. from from that moment onwards, really, because then a bleak, you were 22, you you're saying. So this was within a couple of years, really, still incredibly young, Um, and everything, when when it did click, it clicked big time, really, by the sounds of things.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's weird. If I think back to that time, everything was just happening. So everything was, I was just living in the moment, you know. I wasn't, I didn't have any kind of um, preconceptions about where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. My ambition was very much just like, this is what I want to do, and I'm doing it now. It all kind of kicked off for me when I sent a tune to Sabre who then I think shared it around with some people I think he gave it to Loxy gave it to Zero T, and I just remember so I, I I used to I used to have a job I used to work in television which is another story but um, I just remember thinking to myself what would happen if I searched in Google halogenics and I searched first time I ever did it and the first hit that came up was Fabric and Zero T had done a Fabric mix and oh, put yeah. one of my tunes in it and I was just like what <laughs> what is going on I remember sitting there like sitting back in my chair being like, What is what is going on? Wow. Cause I'd sent this tune to Saber and I I don't think at the time I don't I, I don't I never heard anything back really. Because um, you don't
1: because people are busy, ah. no, you get it, no, but at the time like when you send something to Saber. Might somebody. get like a cheers
0: or whatever, but you know. Yeah. It's like people doing their thing. And so this tune, Rockabye was um was in this mix and I was just like, Oh my god. And wow. oh, I hit up. Zero T and I started chatting to him and then uh, started chatting to Loxie because I went to hardware and uh, Loxie played it and I was just like I was literally there with all my friends oh. I don't know seriously you don't understand how gassed I was I was there at a rave with my friends. We were 18 and I heard my tune being played for the first time in a club. By Loxie By as well. By Loxie, bro. and I'm renegade. Oh. And I just remember seeing my friends. They were like meerkats. They just popped up out of the crowd looking for me and they were like, oi, oi. And I was like, oh, oh, oh my
1: God. <laughs> like, I get
0: tingles now thinking about it. it I was, got tingles, yeah. Man. Wow. I, I was, oh my days. I, I could have died there and then and I would have been happy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's funny because I saw Loxie on Friday. And I told him this story and he was like, "Oh, really? I didn't realize I was the first person to play your tune <laughs> that That's was, incredible. Yeah. And that all of that would have led then to
1: the first sign in. Was it it was on the, the first track that you released was on Invisible. Was it the one that was on Horizons because there was two releases. No, it was Ascari.
0: Right it was Ascari which was actually the first. Was it the first? I think it was the s- I think it was the second what would then be known as Ivy Lab track, Sabre Strain and Halogenics. And I, Oblique was the first tune we wrote together. And then Ascari was the second tune. And Oblique obviously went to Kaz and Ascari, because I think Gove had relationship with Noisia because he'd worked with them on his album. And so he sent that to them. And that was, yeah, I remember going into the shop. I remember going into a shop in central London. It was a record store and they had it and I bought it. I bought my own record because <laughs> I was like, you got your own was like, "Yeah," and they had it there, and it was like my name was on the on the sticker, and I was just like, "Yeah, this, yeah," this is another milestone in my in my career, and I was just so happy, you know.
1: But did you tell the people in the record shop that it was you or anything? Like I don't that, think did I keep did. You, you know, cool? I
0: think yeah, I would kind of started to cotton on that there was like a there was a coolness that you had to project. <laughs> it's very hard to though when you're that gassed up and you're hitting those first kind of milestones, mate. And, It's still something I struggle with. Yeah. You know, I'm 33 now. I'm kind of long in the tooth and I still get very, very excited. I'm becoming a bit more accepting of the fact that I do like to show my excitement. Yeah. So I'm kind of being a bit more kind of loose with it. Whereas before there was definitely a time where I was like, no, I've got to keep it. Keep it hundred, bro. Do you know what
1: I mean? I think that's a, that's, it's a characteristic of drum and bass. It's one that I love. But then my enthusiasm has become my currency and my mm-hmm.
0: signature.
1: And mm-hmm. I don't think I would have got as far as I have done in my career without being that really overly hypey person. And it's no. it's becoming comfortable with your own buzziness I yeah. think really isn't it Yeah. what are your memories of Oblique because that for me is a really personal tune it reminds me of being told that I was going to be a dad um, yeah, and that was course. the first piece of music that I heard after I'd had that news so it reminds me of a really particular time oh, I remember wow. interviewing Kazra about it at the time and stuff like that and I just started the drum and bass arena so that tune holds really strong memories for me I think it's
0: aged incredibly well yep. what memories does that have for you I guess just uh, I'm trying to think back to the studio session we were in Gove's house in Finsbury Park. We just we just linked up. It was a, it was a, it was a summer, 2011, because it came out in 2012, I think. Mm. It came out in early 2012. Yeah. So it was summer. Gove had this really nice house in Finsbury Park. His studio had a window. You could see the garden. Like there was trees, you know. And we were just going through samples. Gove had just written his album, and so we were going through samples, and we found the sample. Um, I think Jay had the kind of the very start of the beat from another project like the drums so we dragged that over and then we just kind of put it together and it it just kind of happened very very naturally and I think that's always a sign of a good song it just kind of it doesn't take long to make you know you do it in a session maybe two and the vocal Frank Carter came from a website No way. came from a website where people would upload their music as multi-track stems and um, you you had access to them it was like a subscription thing I guess like Splice. I was gonna now. say
1: like a yeah a, a premi uh, like a medieval yeah. or prehistoric splice yeah. in a way though. it was kind of very much Primitive. rooted
0: to it was very much rooted to kind of house music. Right. And um Jay had access to this website and had a bunch of acapellas from it and um we dragged in the the Frank Carter one and it just worked. Pop. There wow. was no there was no like there was no big kind of you know skies parting we're sitting there with a pen and paper, writing all this stuff. It was just drag and drop samples that worked together, just happened to work together in the studio. And we hit up Frank and we're like, yo, we've used this thing. And he was like, send it to me. So he sent him the tune and he was like, I've never heard this kind of style of music before, but I'm into it. Um, Brilliant. And we talked to his people about getting all the rights signed up and um, and that was it. That was literally it. And Frank had never been exposed to drum and bass before. And then suddenly he was like, you know, because the, the rice writes that tune. Yeah, it yeah. was just like, he was just like, what the hell? I'm getting people hitting me up. I don't know. Like people tagging me and stuff. Like what the hell's going on? Um And that tune, that tune remained unsigned for a while. It was going to go on subtitles. Then it was going to go on Solar. And then Kaz kind of snapped it up as far as I remember. I'm sure other people would have different versions of the story. As far as I remember, Perez played it at Fabric and Kaz was there and Kaz was like, yo, <laughs> <laughs> what's this? And Alex was like, oh, it's, you know, track from Sabre and a couple of these new kids. And then that was it. Before we knew it, I remember getting a message from Gov being like, it's being signed to Critical
1: oh, my God. <laughs> wow.
0: And that's, that marks the start of an
1: incredibly beautiful relationship that you've had with Critical ever since, which we'll kind of get to. But, um, I mean, you, you threw me a curveball earlier on. You said you had a job in television. Because I was mm. going to ask you about, I wanted to get, because uh, I think the Ivy Lab interview is, you know, a conversation is for another interview, really. Yep. But I wanted to get some of your favorite moments. Because then for the, concert, the, for the next five years, Ivy Lab took up a very large chunk. Yep. of your life, your head, your time, everything. But first, I need to know about this job in television. Even if it's just a brief little one-liner, like, you can't just let that slip. And
0: <laughs> So I knew that I always wanted to work in music or audio. And my first proper paid job was at a clove shop in Highbury. And the manager, who is this girl called Katie, she was a lovely girl, and I would. I told her that I wanted to work in music and and sound, and her boyfriend was a video editor at the Disney Channel. Wow! In Chiswick, yeah. There's actually a company called Technicolor who were the broadcast service provider for Disney, but that's boring. <laughs> Disney Channel. And so she was like, do you, want a, "Do you want some work experience? I can talk to him and maybe get you some work experience." And I was like, "Hell yeah!" And so a week later, she was like, "Yeah, cool. It's all sorted out. You need to go to this place. You're doing it for three days." And you're going to be working with the audio post-production team. I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Thank you so much. You know, she gave me time off so wow. I could go and do it. Go on, what a pass? S- yeah. And I spent three days there in the audio dubbing suites where they would basically put sound to the TV promos for the Disney Channel. So, like, you know, when a new TV show is coming up, it was like, and next week on Disney Channel. And they'd have all these sound effects and they were basically doing all that. And so I was in a music studio, like a proper one. And I was like, I need to, this is, I, I need to be here. This is where I need to be. And so I, I asked them how I actually get a job here, and they said there's that you you can't actually get a job here. Like you can't just apply to a job here. You have to we hire all our staff through agencies. So I signed up to this like agency, and they provided temporary workers for TV and film industry. And so I had said that I had a connection there and that I wanted to work there specifically. And then so I got a job as a i worked in the media management department. So it was handling all the tapes, handling all the old, you know, videotapes. Wow. Because everything was still on videotape mm. by then. And so I worked there for a couple of years. Um, and then I was doing other stuff. I, was, I, I got a job as a runner in Soho for TV, like post-production stuff. Worked at various different companies. Worked at BT, worked at Channel 4. Um, and then eventually a permanent role came up at Technicolor. And I applied for that and I got it. And I worked there for like a year. And my what I wanted to do was become the runner for the audio department. And a runner, if people don't know what that is, it's like the person, that, it's like the assistant. Mm. They make the tea, they make the coffee, they, you know, they run around the building getting stuff for the actual people doing the, doing the work. But it's like you get amazing experience because you get to spend all your time in the studio. And they were like, we don't have, it, it's not a job that exists. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to, you know, it, it paid decent money. I was 18. And so I was like, I'm just going to stick around here. Because it's kind of a cool environment. I'm making money, and then I got in a bit of trouble because I was young and foolish, and I was a bit too familiar with some of the clients, and I know. and kind of you know said some stuff I shouldn't have done. It was very professional, American, you know, corporate world, yeah. and I was this like 18 year old kid, like giving it all like fuck this. Like, <laughs> and I got called into i got I got called into my manager's office, and they had this like printout of all these emails that I'd been sending someone with like very loose language, you know. It wasn't anything inappropriate, but it was just like I was going, I was saying, you know, oh this fucking (laughs) And all this stuff had been forwarded onto like Disney Corporate and they were like, Who is this guy? (laughs) Oh no. And I got I got disciplinary because of it. And then literally it was like something out of a film. A week later, on the job postings, audio assistant. And I was like, oh my God, they've they've made it. And I applied for it and they said, you can't apply for it because you're on disciplinary. Oh, <laughs> no. And I left a month later.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Wow. Pissed. Wow. At what point were you able to
1: just pursue music and you were at a point, I guess, in when Ivy Dab were really taken off, was that a point where you could go full time then on music?
0: No, no. Um, because it was a while before the gigs started coming in, you know? And as you all know, the kind of main mm. source of money for music nowadays is gigs. And I was doing gigs here and there, but it was like you know I was getting paid a hundred quid fifty quid, hundred quid to do a show, and I was very very happy to do that um but it definitely wasn't an amount of money to kind of um support myself um and so I was still working. I actually went and set up my own production company, video production company with my mate Ricky, and um we were terrible <laughs> honestly, honestly, we were terrible. We were making really bad music videos. we made a video we made a music video for Genesis Elijah who is now on yeah, V, I he's think. He's on V at the moment. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. We made one of his very early music videos. We made a video for Lisa Mafia. Right, wow. Which is how I met my wife. She was a model on the shoot. And I was like, <laughs> yo, <laughs> kind of hot. Um, and we made a couple of other videos. We had a, we had a kind of ongoing relationship with Don't Panic. Um, and so that was kind of bringing in a bits and bits of money. And I was still doing music on the side. Um, and I don't think it was until... I don't know 2015 right wow okay 2014 when we kind of really the Ivy Lab thing kind of really galvanized as a thing and we started doing shows and we got signed by primary so we were doing gigs and we you know the music had started to kind of earn a bit from sales and whatnot Um, but I was still doing bits and bobs here and there but it was very much like just to kind of enable me to write music yeah it wasn't like career stuff, apart from the production company. But, it was, you know, that's just because I thought, why not? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um,
1: uh, and then what yeah. were then, so we're in the thick of IB Lab now. Mm-hmm. Give me just a couple of highlights. So you'll always, fond memories that you'll always hold with you about that
0: time. Um, starting the label. Mm. The first party we did at Silver Bullet in Finsbury Park. And we had no idea how it was going to go. We just, we, we paid for it all ourselves. I think we had Omunit, we had Flight, we had um, Deft come and play, and ourselves, obviously. Um, and we had no idea how it's going to be. You know, we set up a Facebook page. And
1: if I remember correctly, that was a massive night as well. That was a big success, wasn't it? It was incredible.
0: We, it was roadblock for starters. We couldn't get any more people through the door. And... We were playing because this was at the time when we'd started making all the beat stuff, and uh, we'd been getting very mixed responses from it on the dance floor, very people being very passionately uh, for it and then very passionately against it. And so we didn't know how what, what to expect, but there were just there were people it was just it was insane the energy was incredible, people singing along to the melodies of the tracks, and we we literally all looked at each other, we were like, "What, what is going on?" Wow, this is amazing. And then it kind of you know so that was definitely a highlight um a lot of the you know a lot of the touring a lot of the, the you know the overseas stuff we did played at low end theory in la which is a legendary mm. absolutely legendary set up by flying lotus and daddy kev yeah um playing that night
1: i would say that's where
0: because at the moment america is really enjoying and
1: really flourishing in this new relationship with drama and bass and i mm-hmm. think if you trace it back the, the start of this new chapter for drum and bass in America goes back to halftime. Mm. That's, and I, I've spoken a great length for Gove about this. Mm. That's their reference point because it links to hip hop. Yep. And suddenly then it's not just this fast music that no. you can just kind of step back and listen on that kind of create that space. And I think that's what started. If you trace back everything now, that's one of the big kind of things. And it was guys like you mm. who went over and,
0: join those dots for people, made sense of the music, really. It's funny because that that conversation is such an interesting one because um, we were kind of, we were looking over at the States and looking at groups like Selection mm. and people like Carmack and Saruda and all these people that were post-dubstep but kind of linked to hip-hop, making instrumentals and that sound the kind of fusion of American culture and electronic music, which we were taking as cues in, in how to write drum and bass, even though at half the, half the tempo, it was still drum, still drum and bass really. Mm. And so when we, when we went over there, it just kind of made sense to them because it was, it was something that they were familiar with, but I guess we bought a kind of, you know, edginess UK kind of flavor to it, which people didn't expect. And so, it's funny that it' just goes in circles, isn't it? Yeah, we're influenced yeah. by them, they're influenced by us, you know, and then it kind of creates something new, it creates all these new lanes and these new avenues and new opportunities for people um so yeah, like doing going over there, going over to the states and playing all those parties was definitely a highlight, and I think just you know just meeting lots of different people I mean winning awards, obviously that's a good one. We won newcomer label d j mag which was a kind of a very big shot in the arm. And there was one tour we did actually, it was the Shades, Shades and Ivor Lab tour we did in twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen. It was me, Jay, Alex and Eprom, 30 dates across the States and Canada, um, playing at some very small venues and playing at some much bigger venues. And obviously their thing was popping off and it still continues to pop off. Mm. I think it was like at that very pinnacle moment of what we were doing. Um and so to be on the ground and 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 witness that energy and that kind of that, you know that uh, welcoming energy from people over there, they just loved it. They absolutely loved it. People turning up with, you know, tattoos of like the logos and like wearing the t-shirts and singing the songs and and it was an infectious energy to be yeah. around. Because you,
1: know? you were still making, and this is something that blows my mind. When I was looking back over things and looking back over interviews that we had done around about the time, you know, you were releasing on Metalheads, you were still, you had Pledge and stuff like that. You know, there was no, you didn't put halogenics aside. No. You, you had this duality, which must have taken up so much of your heads, just constantly pouring out. If you're not doing Ivy Lab stuff, you're doing halogenic stuff. Yeah. That must have been thrilling at points, but also probably quite overwhelming and quite fatiguing at points. Yeah, really? very especially intense. with thirty day tours thrown yeah. into the mix as well. Very,
0: very intense. I feel like I always had something to prove. I had the most to prove out of the three of us.
1: Because you were the youngest? I was
0: I wasn't the youngest, but I was I was the Jay was the youngest. Not by much, but um I was the kind of least accomplished of the three. You know, Stray had Stray had been releasing stuff longer than I had. Had bigger projects out. He'd been on Exit and stuff like that, yeah. hadn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and he'd done some stuff with Critical before. Um, and Gove obviously had been around for for a long time, and so I was like, I was I was the third guy in Ivy Lab, you know. And so I had all this energy and ambition and this desire to prove myself, not only to myself but to everybody else, that I was worthy of being in that crew, you know. Um, and that was so
1: much of that is all created by yourself. Oh, hundred percent,
0: hundred percent. And it's a blessing and a curse because it's a, it's an incredibly powerful motivator because it means that I'm just constantly on it. I'm in the studio, I'm writing beats. I'm you know, uh, I'm down to to tour. I'm down to 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 get on a plane and go to the other side of the world and just do it and just be in that environment because I just it was something that I really really wanted. But then, yeah, it's very, very intense and time-consuming. And 2016, I just got married. And pretty much a few months after I got married, went on tour. You know, was going into America, was going to New Zealand. It was like, it was just very, very busy. And I was taking on a lot of that responsibility because I wanted to. And I look back at it and I think that it was maybe an inauthentic like we said earlier it was an inauthentic ambition because it was an ambition born of of like um it came from the wrong place yeah it came from this idea that i wasn't good enough to be there and so i had to do more than i guess was necessary in order to prove my value
1: even though you're like collaborating with goldie and doing tunes with cleveland walk it's (laughs)
0: insane it's insane and I, i you know anybody i tell tell this to they're just like You know, and it's an ongoing discussion I have with myself in context of, you know, speaking to my friends, family, you know, whether it's in therapy or whatever. And and so, yeah, that the environment that that creates is one of intense stress and inauthentic kind of gain, I guess you could say, Mm. because the gains I was making were were rooted in, like you said, the kind of wrong idea about myself and about who I was. And that's so why I was I wasn't happy.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't matter what you would have achieved, no. it wouldn't have been enough because it wasn't you were looking at the wrong yeah. Goal in yeah. a way. Yeah. I was
0: I was wearing the rose coloured glasses. You know, it was all all the success was through the lens of, yeah, but you're not that you're not good enough to be here. And so it got to twenty seventeen and I was just non stop on the road. Um and I remember it. I remember the day I left. I messaged those guys and I was like I can't do this anymore because I'd just finished a 2 week tour with Gove in the states and you know working with <laughs> being in a relationship with three people myself and two other people when the stakes are incredibly high because we're making lots of money we're you know there's we're relying on each other to constantly make music and to constantly be at the, the at, at the forefront and the cutting edge that's the kind of that's the responsibility that we had that we were given by it almost seems like we were given that by the industry it was like ivy lab you know cutting edge yeah at the at the, at, at the front of it even though even though objectively we weren't um
1: but you it, were pushing the boundaries
0: yeah. and they continue to do that now yeah
1: you know their album last year was incredible and i think you know that's where ivy lab was happiest really yeah. in that type of I mean, where it exists like in the spectrum of things but yeah that's That's so much pressure. I mean, the one, I was in a unique position because you'd asked me to report you leaving the band on UKF and DJ Mag on the same day had randomly asked me to go to their studio, which isn't far from where we are now, actually, um, to interview them about things. So I was speaking to you and I was speaking to them all within the space of about 24, 48 hours. Yeah. And I was so like impressed by how grown up it all was. Mm. There was just a place of complete respect mm. and love for each other. When I spoke to them about it and I said, look, you know, we're going to do the announcement on UKF. They were fully aware and they're like, great, we're really glad, you know, all power to him. We want to see this. And then when we published that story, they shared it, you shared it there was this it was handled in an incredibly if we think about drum and bass and beefs and people falling out and band splitting up it was the most grown-up mature
0: band split yeah. i've
1: ever known or been able to witness so close yeah. up hand.
0: i guess i guess that was intentional hmm. you know because all of that what you say all of that kind of negativity ultimately just ends up hurting people it's, it serves no purpose it creates drama, it creates gossip. It then it det- it detracts from what we want to do, which is write music. Right. Um, and you know, in all honesty, it was, it was messy. It wasn't, it wasn't all rosy and kind of and nice, it was, you know, I was jumping off of a moving train. <laughs> well, yeah. And leaving, you know, a relationship, which I had, uh, cultivated and been a very core part of for five years and five, very formative years of my life, you know, And for the other two guys as well, it was by far the biggest project that we'd been involved in. Yeah. And... You kind of went into Ivy
1: Lab as a child and came out of it as a man. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: And I just... I felt that the stress and and the... why I was doing... why I was putting so much energy into it was not going to end up, for me, as a happy story for me. Yeah. You said earlier about ambition. And... I have this, this idea of ambition to me, about like where I want to where I want to get to my my where I want to get to in my career with regards to ambition. And there is a tennis player, there is an Australian tennis player called Ashley Barty, who won the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. And she's twenty; she was twenty-four when she won the U.S. Open, right? And she used to be a cricketer; she used to be an Australian cricketer, wow. and then she gave up her cricket career and was just like, "I guess I am just going to play tennis and played tennis, won the U.S. Open, and then quit."
1: Yeah, oh, go on. And then
0: retired. She was like, I've done it. Yeah. I don't need to prove myself. I'm done. I've clocked yeah. tennis, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go do something else. I don't know what she's doing now. But I remember cuz I was, you know, through pandemic, she, she won the US Open in in the pandemic and I just remember what, I was just big into tennis then. And um I hearing her story and I was just like I rate that so much. Yeah. And that kind of really speaks to a deeper reason about why I left Ivy Lab because I just felt like I would have constantly been um, constantly been putting all this pressure on my shoulders to do more, to be better, to to work harder. And the impact that that was having, even though I wasn't necessarily consciously aware of it at the time, it was having a very bad impact on my life. I wasn't, I had, you know, got married in 2016. I had spent hardly any time with my wife until 2018 when wow. I when I decided to leave. And... I did this tour, I did this two week tour of which was very intense and then flew home, put my laundry in the washing machine, took it out of the tumble dryer, or whatever, I packed it up and got on a plane to South Africa and played a festival when I landed. And I was just like, I can't do this anymore. This is too much for me. This this constant this constant like um Movement, movement. This having to put all this energy into this being on stage, and it's you know these were big crowds, this was these were big stages, and I kind of looked at myself and I was like, surely this is the summation of my ambition. This is where I want to be, and st- I was deeply unhappy. And I think the only option was was for me to 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 hang out. Yeah, because I would have, I wow. would have just, it, I, you know, my health would have suffered, and my relationship would have suffered, and, and, you know, has I've, that
1: changed your relationship with touring ever since? Yes, big time. Where are you at with touring now? To with whiz- to the future, to the the present day, for a second.
0: Um, I want to do shows that I enjoy, and that I know that I am going to enjoy, and I think I've I've had enough experience in the game now to be able to foresee what I'm going to enjoy and what I'm not going to enjoy. At the same time, there's this kind of... At the same time, I understand that in order to maintain my career, I have to play shows. I have to go out there and and uh, perform to my fans. It's part of what I do. But there's a much greater understanding of my limitations... And my desire to go out and do those things and to spend time away from home, you know, I'm a father now, I've got an 18 month old son, you know, I have a wife, I have a family and I don't have, I feel like I don't have the luxury now to just be away all the time. Because yeah. it's unfair on my wife to just have that, to, you know, just to be like, well, I'm a touring DJ, you know what you, you know, yeah. you, know you know what you signed up for, <laughs> see you later like that's not that's, that's a choice that I have to make and I know it impacts my career and I'm fine with that and so I'm um, it makes it special then though doesn't it it when does do it does it does because I'm really choosing to be there and I st- honestly I still struggle with it honestly I still struggle with, having, with, with, with with doing shows because sometimes I don't want to do it because I know that how much energy it takes to get up there and to really perform because after the Ivor Lab thing, I was so burnt out. I was so burnt out and I was just like trying to find my way. What am I doing now? What is what is halogenics? Yeah. What is halogenics if it's not an extension of Ivor Lab? Because that's what it was.
1: Was that why Lordell came about at that time, the Lordell project? Yeah. Almost like a kind of uh, a debriefing, a decommissioning or recalibration of yourself and ideas that you'd had and stuff like that. Yeah, because I'd, of...
0: separate, I'd separated my physicalness from the Ivor Lab project but I still and still do completely identify with the philosophy behind the music and the and the identity of the music is still a big part of myself which is in that sound mm-hmm. and so to then suddenly stop writing that was just strange and it felt disingenuous for me to not put that music out but at the same time I was aware that there was, um, it may have confused things slightly by releasing that stuff as Halogenics, even though I did. Yeah. With uh, Deep News. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was that, that had everything on it. That was yeah. a real statement. Yes. Yeah. And almost like an album, really, yeah. in a way.
0: But I felt that was, it, it was it was ill conceived. Because, not ill conceived, it just wasn't very thought out. It was very much like, I've left Ivy Lab, I still write beats, I write drum bass too, here's a project with it, with it all on. And it didn't really do what I wanted it to do. Um, what music- did
1: you want it to do then? Because <laughs> I listened back to it and I, I thought it works really well. Like it's almost now looking back at it over in hindsight, it's almost like an album. And I, I think it stands to test the time more, more than I remembered it
0: doing really. It's funny because you sent me over a very brief outline of what we were going to talk about, right? And when I got to this part of the conversation, I really sat back in my chair and I thought about it. Because I figured you'd ask about it. And I, th- my aunt's answer would be, I didn't think it kind of did what I wanted it to do. And then you'd ask, what did you want it to do? <laughs> <laughs> and my response to that, which I thought about, was that, which was a difficult one for me to kind of admit to in my head, was that I think there's been a very, a very real sense of kind of cognitive dissonance with regards to why... I left Ivy Lab. On one hand, the stress and the anxiety and um, the impact it had on me was, was real. And it was honestly the best decision I've ever made in my life with regards to my career and my, 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 and my well-being. But at the same time, I can't just switch off that part of my brain that was like, yeah, but you need to prove. You now, you now need to prove yourself even more out of the frying pan and into the fire in that type of way mentally like wow like it was something I had to do leaving but at the same time it didn't cure my uh, insatiable appetite for kind of this feeling of self worth and so the Laudelle project was born out of that Deep News was out of that and you know I don't think I'm ever going to get to a point in my musical career where I go everything I do is great and I'm happy with myself as a performer.
1: Well, we have come full circle yeah. in that type of way, really, haven't they? But surely you're closer to being comfortable with that inability to be happy or not, inability to accept that's the peak, if you know what I mean. You, yeah. You, as you get, as the the longer in the tooth you get. Yeah. That becomes an easier process, I think. Doesn't yeah,
0: it? I think my my viewpoint changes and the ambition kind of um evolves the ambition then becomes about being satisfied and being happy and so if you kind of there's an exercise which I do which is I imagine my life and what it would be like if I was happy and content with what I'd done and then I work backwards and kind of think about okay what what would I have had to do in order to achieve that and one of the things is just to put out music that I like and to actually as simple as that. Literally, <laughs> and to and to trust that what I'm writing and when I experience moments of joy and satisfaction that that's genuine. Yeah. And to be like, okay, I'll I'll be writing a tune. It's kind of why I tend to gravitate gravitate more towards soulful stuff these days because it just it has a much deeper connection to me than the other stuff. I feel I, I, you know I feel there's a lot more of my identity in that music. And so I'm much more able to be like, I like this. Yeah. And so I'm gonna put it out. Or I'm gonna add it to a project.
1: I think Lost Friends really sums that up, really, yeah. doesn't it? That must have been I mean it's a deeply, deeply personal. That you know, that that track alone really yeah. and the artwork and everything. I mean, just take a moment to just yeah, just big up Ebo really yeah. there, isn't it? Rest in peace. Yeah. yeah. I mean yeah.
0: that was, you know, that news kind of still does hits me like a ton of bricks and um, you know because we we shared a studio together in uh, around the corner from here in in Tottenham and we became very close he was a very introspective soul you know we had lots of conversations about ourselves and about our identities and who we were and he was a father and he was a musician and he was having similar struggles to me you know who was he in the context of foreign beggars who was he in the context of an artist, a father. Um, and even though I wasn't a father at the time, I felt, I felt this very, um, I felt a, a great affinity towards him because he was so open about his struggles, you know, and yeah, when he passed away, it was terrible. And I took it very badly. <laughs> I was, I was very, I very sure sad. Yeah. yeah. Very sad. Um, and we actually, we'd had a bit of a disagreement about, six months before he passed and I didn't speak to him for a while um, uh. but luckily we had reconnected about a month before he passed away and we had this conversation on the phone where we just like reconnected and we both kind of just said you know what that was that that is what it is we're both sorry we love each other let's just kind of move on and the last time I spoke to him was when we were playing um we were playing call of duty on playstation and then yeah about a week later I heard the news And yeah, just, it was very tough. Um, And then, yeah, I just, I felt like, uh, you know, I'd written, that track was written after he died and it just, it kind of encapsulated the feeling I had of sadness Mm. and a bit of regret that we had not spoken for a while. Um, And then a bit of, you know, Joy about the relationship that we that we did have, um, and that's what I mean. That you know, that's the kind of stuff that I want to put my name on. That's the stuff that I feel passionate about. Yeah. The other stuff, even though I do like it, the bledges and the you know the shellers and all that kind of stuff, because that speaks to a kind of inner angry child, mm. which I still have. Um, it's a lot less powerful and pungent. That that yeah. feeling of like. Mm. It's, you know, it's nice and it's cool, but...
1: That's the seed from which everything grows from, but the flowers that grow above the ground are very different, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that was part of the journey. Yeah. Tell me about the rest of the EP, because there's... Alex plays a really strong role in it, and Alex has played a really strong role in your career. He's come up quite a few times already. He has. I think this is your 14th collaboration with him.
0: That's mad. (laughs) I mean, Alex was... Alex was uh, a kind of constant in my musical career, my musical journey from even before I started making music because when I I was, you know, DJing, collecting records, I was always buying his tunes. I was buying his, you know, early stuff, Horizons, um, you know, the very early Shogun stuff. Yeah. You know, and I, I went to go and see him a few times. DJ, I went to go and see him at Fabric. And I went to go and see him at play at the end at Shogun night. Um, And so to then like fast forward to then suddenly be working with him, but like working with him very closely was a dream come true, honestly. And although now I guess we could be be considered, you know, equals, obviously he's a lot further down the line than I am and more accomplished. But, you know, we've... um, we exist in this kind of same similar space. Oh man. Yeah. Contemporary. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, I'm such a massive fan of his, you know, <laughs> which makes it amazing for me to work with him. Um, And we've developed a very close relationship. And <laughs> the thing is with me, right. Is that I'm quite, I'm a, I'm an honest person. Like if, if I'm not feeling, if I'm not feeling right, then I'll say something and that can be quite challenging. And so like with a lot of people who are close with me, and it's usually the people that are close with me that, that bear the brunt, is that I'm, you know, I'm not, I can be quite vocal about if I'm not happy with the relationship, you know. This is what happened with Ebo, you know. Um, and it's happened with Alex. We've, you know, we've, we've had periods where we haven't spoken to each other.
1: Oh, I think, like creator, when you're making when you're creating with somebody, and again, it's that same as that like that very delicate balance of collaborating really yeah. isn't
0: it you're kind of you're sharing a lot of your personal thoughts and feelings through yeah, music, you,
1: you open yourselves up yeah. vulnerably yeah uh, like yeah and and you make yourself vulnerable as an artist yeah. anyway, yeah. don't you full stop, yeah,
0: Brian. which is challenging when relationships go from a working relationship to a personal relationship. Um, and yeah, I've, you know, worked with Alex, obviously met Alex professionally, like obviously saw him DJing in that, but then started working with him in the context of Ivy Lab because um, he'd, he'd had a long working relationship with Gove um, and so it was just natural that we were going to work together because he was also doing the beat stuff as well and then obviously went to work with, uh, with E-Promise Shades and yeah, the majority of the work we did, even as Ivy Lab, was just me and him. You know, that was the beauty of the Ivy Lab project is that it was it was a, it was a collective, mm. more than a singular artist. It was a singular artist that had three members in it, and so it's funny, go, kind of going back to what you said before, as, as Halogenics. Halogenics became a kind of became an offshoot for stuff that wasn't uh, appropriate for the Ivy Lab project, like Bledge. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I have had lying around after I left was just stuff that I'd written that you know wasn't wasn't going to form part of the Ivorlad project, which then went on to be on Deep News or whatever. Um, but yeah, working with Alex, uh, he's an inspiring guy. He um, he creates music uh, very effortlessly, and it's, um, it's 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 nice to be around that that yeah. energy, you know. And so we kind of we've found ourselves. Um, in the studio time and time again from the, the orchestra EP. I think that was about three of those were just me and him. Um, the shades thing was us three. Um, obviously the stuff we've written together and it's a, it's a, it's a relationship. I hope to continue because we, I, I think we feed off each other musically. Yeah. You know, I'm definitely inspired by stuff he does. I know, even though he may not admit it, I'm sure he's inspired by the stuff that I do. And so, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was only right for, how to, for him to be featured on this project because we actually wrote that track. Um, we wrote two tracks in that session, Arme and uh, Perfect Stranger, which he ended up taking on his little kind of mini LP mm. uh, without end, which was in 2020. And then we were trying to, you know, the idea of this label has been around for ages since I left Ivy Lab. Because yeah. we had a label, and I and I, I was uh, fully aware of the freedom that having a label gave in terms of being able to just put out your own stuff, whenever you wanted, and put out package your it. Own how stuff. You, yeah. yeah,
1: with your artwork, yeah. and your own pace and yeah. everything. Set your own schedule. Creative have your, control.
0: Have your own agenda with it. Mm. Um, and what
1: is the Gemini Gemini agenda? And what about the concept of the label itself as well?
0: Um, I mean, above and beyond just putting out my own music, which of course it is, it's a kind of, I want it to be a place that, um, is, 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 is a home for, for quality, you know, and class. And I think without wanting to speak of myself too highly, I guess, I hold dear the fact that my music is, is quite classy, you know, Mm. it's quite elegant. The music, it's not, it's not cheesy. It's not too commercial poppy, whatever. It's like, it kind of bridges, a. it's it's kind of, you know, it exists in that world. And so I just want it to be a place for that music. And, and also, you know, what I'm doing with the label is, is I'm doing, um, I'm the splits, even though it's just my music for now, the splits are going to be more heavily weighted towards the artist. Love that. So the artist gets more of the money. And so I want to just change the dynamic that exists out there. Yep. And whether it's just me that does it, I don't care. But I feel like I want people to be rewarded more. Because the whole 50-50 thing, I'm like, I understand it. It's the status quo. It's, what, it's how the music industry has been always uh, set up. But really, nowadays, in the current kind of climate... A label, okay, yeah, I'm providing my experience, my um, my clout, I guess you could say, for lack of a better expression, um, and so I'm creating a platform for people to do that. But is that really worth fifty percent? I don't know. Also, it's a choice. Like I just want people to to feel like they're re- they're rewarded, yeah, better, and they take more of their they take more ownership this is music. something
1: that's really a lot this, this is hugely interesting to me because I've also established one more, more thing as a label as yep. well and I was really inspired by Rebel Music when um, Ben who runs that label said that the artists get paid 60 mm-hmm. and the label take 40 mm-hmm. um, so effectively the artists own more of the label than he does yeah. and I love that and that's yeah. what I'm doing
0: with my label it's exactly the same as Gemini 60 and to
1: 40. I speak into a lot of artists so many people get treated really badly from labels yep. and I think the longer I've been in the industry the more I'm trusted with and people are told that they they owed hundreds and hundreds of pounds for press and promotion or mastering. And they're asking me advice on this. It's like, I didn't even know labels treated people that mm. badly, to be honest. Yeah. I thought that there was a lot more professional respect than there actually is. But there's a culture... Um, it's not exclusive to drum and bass in any way, but I think the more underground sounds, the more, the less, um, overheads there, the, the less profit margins there are. So the more likely it is for labels to be penny pinching and not treat artists properly. But there is a real culture of people not being treated fairly in this creative industry, isn't there? Yeah.
0: It's the, the, uh, over commercialization of, of art. Hmm and you know the um the, ca- the the capitalism of it all you know because it is a huge money spinner there's so much money generated from music from from gigs from sales from streaming from from you know rights from syncs all that stuff and so if you're a label and if you're a bit nefarious as a character and you set up a label and suddenly you've got thousands of pounds coming into your account i understand the mentality that some people have where they're like yeah but i'm going to keep this I think it's a it's stupid mentality, but I understand it, yeah. and um, I just think it's 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 a I think it's it's a symptom of a completely warped and broken system. And I think it takes people just making very small changes to create a a behavioural change within a community of people. So you get new labels who offer weighted splits towards artists. Then that just becomes the new norm. Yeah. And then artists feel like, oh, actually, I can actually support myself from doing this rather than giving away 50% of my masters to a label. And then also never getting a statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Accounting seems yeah. to be a huge thing or feeling that they have to
1: be on the road constantly all of the time, eventually getting themselves into the situation that
0: you were in. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very important for me that when I was setting up the label, it's like the why, you know, and not going too deep into it, but... Because I could have just continued to put myself put my stuff out on critical and that would have been a completely fine avenue for me to do so. But I was
1: gonna say, and that's an example of a label who have done things who've stayed above board absolutely and treatable treat their artists with respect. Because you can see by just how how long people stay on the label for. Yeah. You know, that's evident that Casra does his business right in he that does. type of way. And, and he has that is, developed a community.
0: Yeah. And he is the he for me he's the he's the poster boy of how to run a good label. You know he cares about the artists. He talks to you in depth about what you want, what you want to achieve. He's upfront with with all the money. He pays you on time. You know there's freedom there to do creatively what you want and the the incredible platform to promote your music and to do amazing shows. Yeah. He sold out Printworks. I mean that's mental. Yeah. Underground label selling out Printworks. Mad. So. I've always said to
1: him, ever since our first interview that I did with him around about the oblique time, was that it's interesting because he came into running a label through the love and the craft and the creativity of running a label. He wasn't an artist. He didn't have an ulterior motive. He didn't have a sound or anything like that. He came from, I think before that, he was doing like punk bands and stuff like that and came from a real kind of garage kind of background and stuff and so his
0: he just loved the music and uh, wanted to promote it yeah
1: yeah Yeah. and I think that makes a difference then because there's no ulterior motive there he wants to create this amazing kind of platform there and I've always found that inspiring yeah um, and another label, I think that uh, I certainly, you know, a, a family that we're both uh, uh, orbit around as little satellites is Vision mm-hmm. as well, which, you know, has kind of been part of, you've been part of that life in many ways or that world, that community as well, really, yeah. which again, kind of seem to value the relationships that they have with people and
0: empower you, I think. Yeah, they're, they're I mean, I think one of the main strengths of that is just their their reach, And that they have access to all of these people and all of this talent that they, I mean, it takes a lot to run a label. Like, it's not a massively expensive endeavor, but it takes a lot of time. It takes um, a lot of energy. It takes, you know, you have to be very creative about how you do things. And so for them to take people who are unknown, relatively speaking, unknown people and co-sign them and be like we're Noisia and we believe in this person we're going to put their music out is such a shot in the arm mm. and it's such a powerful thing to kind of give away your clout like that mm. not that it's a zero sum game not that just because they're giving it away it does it's 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 not theirs but you see a lot of times people people gatekeep their their position and they don't want to share yeah because, because they're worried about losing it. Yeah. Whereas no one's ever going to touch noise, yeah? ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they can do that, and and the fact that they know that, and that they're willing to do that, is amazing. Yeah and I've experienced that myself as a
1: broadcaster as a radio host you yep. know in the same way that artists have when they're signed yep. in that type of way but I think when we look back over your career you have got these you really value relationships I think and mm-hmm. connections don't you yeah
0: i'm i don't i don't really have time for the i don't really have time for relationships that mean nothing and uh, I was just trying to think of how to say that without it sounding like I'm a dick, but <laughs> like, um, if I work with someone, I want, I want there to be a reason that we're working together, not just because I like your music you make. And therefore I think we make good music and we can sell it and become big DJs. Like, I don't care about that. Like I care about you as a person and I want to, I I want to identify with you as a person. So therefore we feel like we can be open and, create something that means something. So like working with Tice, right? That relationship came because um, we I'd sent him a bunch of Ivy Lab beats and he was, this is when they were just starting the Vision Radio and he was really supportive of that and he invited me to the studio and I was like, this is Tice. (laughs) But before we wrote any music, we brought him over for a 2020 party when we were doing it at Phonox and um I'd kind of charged myself with being his chaperone. Yeah. Like he made his way into town, but then I met him for dinner, went to the club. And I'd I'd seen him before and I'd spoke to him a couple of times, but then, you know, took him to his hotel, met him in the morning, went and got lunch, stuck him on a train. And we just had we just talked talked about stuff and he's a very deep thinker. Oh, massively, man. Right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we became friends, you know, and so we worked together as Noisia and Ivy Lab and then later down the line as Lordell and Tice and there was just like uh, there was a solid foundation there of a friendship before there was music. The same with Alex. The same with... Um, it's really interesting. With Kaz, you know, it's like, obviously the, the, the music is... is the music is the is 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 the starter, but then the relationship is what kind of carries what carries it, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think with some of these instances, certainly with Tyson with Alex, it captures your conversion from that fanboy, that that original Lawrence who was dancing in front of the mirror, you know, that original you know pure passionate man who loves this drum and bass to a, a fellow craftsman with these people, yeah. who's a peer of theirs. And these relationships kind of, you know, they transform over that time as you do as an artist and stuff like that. So they capture both you as a private music loving individual and you as an artist who puts out their soul into the world. Yeah.
0: And it's quite, it's quite a thing to, um, it's quite a thing to comprehend really that transformation because Mm. it takes a lot of, and like we were just, well, like we were talking about earlier, you know, my whole thing about, doubting and not believing in myself or whatever being in that space is, is very um confrontational it's like oh my god do I belong here <laughs> really <laughs> I'm in the studio with nausea I'm like sitting down with Nick watching him mess around in serum and he's teaching me stuff and like Tice is like teaching me how to use the modular and like Alex is like you know teaching me how to do this and show me all this stuff and and Kaz is like talking to me about writing e p s and Goldie's phoning me up going, "I want you to do this, and I want you to I want you to do that and da, 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 da. And, I'm, and I'm going, what is going on <laughs> <laughs> and there's a kind of like there is a almost a disassociation which I have to contend with, which is like there's part of me that refuses to believe that that it, it that is happening at the time. <laughs> I'm like, this is. This, there's no way. But then, as my friend would say, you have irrefutable evidence in the world that these things have happened and that you belong here. So just accept it. Yeah. But then there's still part of my head. I was going, yeah, but, you know
1: it's almost
0: like you've You've blacked it you've blacked it you've blacked your way in there (laughs) but i mean i still i'm
1: I'm exactly 10 years older than you again and i still get that now i don't think it ever changes but what is changing now is that you're creating a platform and eventually we'll have uh, something in place at gemini gemini where you will be able to pass on and i'm sure you do with other collaborations and people that you inspire with the new generation coming through those you know kind of 18 to 20s like exactly where you were when you were first breaking through that's still really really close to you that's still at the forefront of your mind that still feels like yesterday at certain points probably feels like millions of years ago as well in other points like time does that type of thing But it seems like Gemini Gemini is going to be your opportunity then to give other people the chance to have that experience and to sit there going, like, fucking hell, I'm with allergenics. Oh my God, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. (laughs) And go through that same twisted, complex knots of the the, the inner turmoil that goes through your brain as a creative person.
0: Ultimately, yes. I think that's where I hope that it gets to is a place where people feel that they can, you know. Um, people feel that they can send me music and if it's a right fit, then it kind of works out for everybody. Um, I guess immediately it's, it's, it's just, it's just another evolution in my story and another chapter for me to say, okay, this is something I'm doing, you know, it's funny because someone asked me this question, um, before when the initial promo was done for the EP there was an article, I think it was Mixmag, and it was like, "What's the ethos behind the label?" I know that was it. I put, I did an Instagram post, and someone asked me, "What's the ethos behind the label?" And I was like, "I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if I sat down and was like, I have this overwhelming feeling that there's something missing in the world, and that Gemini Gemini is going to be the thing that fills that gap." I don't think that that necessarily means that it can't be that and it can't be this, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be grandiose like that, but it's like, you know, it can't be some a, a platform for people to come and feel like they, they have a home and, uh, you know, their music is listened to whatever. whatever. Um, but it's just something that I wanted to do. And in the space of trying to be truer to myself and, and accept my, my um, thoughts and feelings more, it's just something that I wanted to do and did yeah yeah yeah
1: you don't need that ethos but you did have the why though when you thought about it to begin with i think that's the ethos almost comes over time yeah really then when you realize don't it doesn't it yeah
0: yeah
1: how far ahead into the future are you looking are you planning it seems that you're taking it very very easily and nothing is going to get thrown out nothing is going to get rushed in any type of way it's completely unhurried and very natural
0: yes and also I I want to create a kind of momentum with it. You know, I think I'd typically, um, I'd been, you know, releasing one or two projects a year. I released, uh Dragon Force EP was 2020 and then I didn't release, there was no major project after that. There was a few singles, but there was no big kind of EP or anything like that. There was a couple of remixes. Um and I think that now the current, the current climate of music is one where you just have to be visible all the time if you want to maintain a kind of, uh, if you want to grow, if you want to consistently grow. And so from 2020, I've just, all this stuff, all this stuff was, was written years ago. The Lost Frenzy EP was written years ago um, and I've just been sitting on my hands waiting for the right moment to feel like I was happy enough to release it, you know. Um but now I'm like fully scheduled up until July. So what well, my, my goal is to release one thing a month. So I've got January was Lost Friends, February, army, March, the E P with the other two tracks mm. comes out. Then April um is A Thing with Strategy, which is a kind of Lordell project, one forty thing, Pray for the Dead. Brilliant. Um and then March and then May Um, is a thing with Liam Bailey like a vocal thing awesome Um, and then it's kind of like there's other stuff there's there's a thing with JD Reid which is amazing he's one of my favourite favourite producers go on thing with D-Bridge and just other stuff it's all kind of in a folder and I just need to make sense of it
1: and see what the time is right like you say kind of reacting to things then and having that flexibility there was something there's an analogy that London Electricity gave me when he left um, hospital records and he was saying he really liked the time of it being a speedboat where you could just suddenly go and it had become an oil tanker and that's why he wanted to to leave and I thought that was a really good analogy and it's how I feel about a lot of stuff I'm doing with One More Thing as well it's like just responding to energies and just having an idea someone calls you up and thinking that would be a really good collaboration Yeah, yeah 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 yeah, and there's only certain points I think in your career where you can truly just embrace that energy and have the freedom and the flexibility and that's where you're at now
0: I definitely yeah I definitely agree with that and it kind of goes back to the whole critical thing you know there was never it wasn't like I don't want to be part of critical anymore I still am part of critical and I still will put music out on critical
1: you'll always have a place at that table Yeah. yeah yeah
0: and um but also I want to be in a position where I can just be like, I've got a tune. I want to put it out next month. Let's go. Yeah. There comes a time where I think you need to mm-hmm. as
1: an artist, really, in that type of way. Yeah. That's brilliant. Mm. What else does the world need to know about allergenics? And we have, we've traversed your career. I continue to chronicle it from pretty much the start. <laughs> from really. day one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what will I be chronicling next? So what do people need to know? What haven't I chronicled?
0: Um... Never used the word chronicle so many times uh, in one sentence. Nothing really. I think I'm it's fairly it's a fairly open book. What yeah. you see is what you get. I definitely my ambitions I say that word with a bit of hesitancy, but my ambitions for the future are definitely just to continue to write music that I like, that I agree with, um, that I connect with and eventually, you know, allow you know give that platform to other people because honestly honestly and i've always been um a passionate advocate for this i i feel that there is such a powerful thing in giving away what you know to other people yes to the next generation yes and allowing them to come through leaving the ladder down whatever metaphor you want to say um you know, and I, I am honestly thinking about, you know, the next ten years. What do I want to do? Do I want to do this forever? I don't know. Like Ashley Barty, yeah. Do I want to get to a place where I feel happy and go, see you later?
1: Go on, nice one. So we're going to see you win the US Open <laughs> then. In a couple of years time. <laughs> this is what I
0: mean. I don't. I don't. I don't know what that looks like for me. And that's that's a kind of that's a that's a it's a scary but exciting question to ask yeah you know like what do I what do I want for this because I don't think I want I say this now I could change my mind but I don't think I want to do this forever I I want to get to a point where I can happily say I've I've done it yeah and I'm happy with my achievements I don't think I'll ever stop writing music just because I love it so much but maybe I'll stop DJing um i don't know who knows
1: yeah that's really exciting yeah. really really exciting i wish you all the best with everything and thanks for taking the time out and and respecting trusting me with your story really Mate, and, and telling me all of this man. thank it's you brilliant. so much
0: for giving me the time and the platform to be able to talk awesome
1: my pleasure we'll do another one in 10 years time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool Allergenics. Cool. thank you big up brilliant